you have to make decisions based on something. So people watch debates on TV, read restaurant reviews, consult Rotten Tomatoes for movie reviews, in order to evaluate, to discern, to make a decision, to judge a candidate or a restaurant or a film correctly. Preachers get judged too. Spurgeon once remarked to some young student preacher, I heard one say the other day that a certain preacher had no more gifts for the ministry than an oyster. And in my own judgment, that was a slander on the oyster. <laughs> for that worthy bivalve shows great discretion in his openings and knows when to close. <laughs> if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them. And they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. <laughs> In the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, even he was judged by his hearers. Many people around him seemed, seemed to be feeling the dissonance that John the Baptist was feeling, that he had experienced, that we looked at a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 11. And there were certain expectations of what was to occur when the Messiah had come. Some of them from the Old Testament Scriptures, some of them not. But there were common ideas of what the Messiah's coming would be like. And basic to all of them was a reconstitution of Israel's prosperity, especially in the sense of their political independence. Now, was Jesus going to do this? Was He going to fulfill all the people's expectations that they had for the Messiah of God? That was a question in many people's minds. And Jesus was aware of that question. He had that in mind also. Jesus understood and taught that there was a difference between his first and his second comings. That is, Jesus knew that this first time, he had come not to judge, but to save. He had come to save his people by dying and rising again. He also knew that another time he would return to fulfill all the other ancient promises of God to his people. What he did now in his preaching ministry, in his first coming, was to teach people the truth about God's word and God's kingdom and how it really would all work, and in fact, how it was beginning to work even then. But could people see that? Could even John the Baptist see that? He was having trouble. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. It's where we are in our study through Matthew's gospel. If you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 818. Hear God's Word. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about Him, so that He got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. 
But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and an evil one, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. 
He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. (coughs) Friends, just a word on how to handle and grapple with a big passage like this. It's helpful if you divide it into sections. So if you're reading along in the ESV, you notice there are seven sections that are headlined there. You have the parable of the sower, the statement about parables, the explanation of the parable of the sower, parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, those are really, I would say, two separate sections, though the ESV doesn't headline them like that, because you've got two separate parables. So then the, another statement about parables, and then the parable of the weeds explained. So as I counted, it would be eight sections. So I would give those eight sections clearly in mind, and then I would just kind of look at them. I would read them and reread them. In fact, that's what I was doing on Friday, reading them and rereading them. And I think you'll notice that there are some pretty evident pairs. So the, the parable of the sower and where it's explained, would be one pair. And the parable of the weeds and where it's explained, that would be another pair together. And those, those two little parables that the ESV put together there in 31 to 33, uh, the two different parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, they're making the same point. So that'd be another obvious pair. And then you only have two other sections left. Those are the two sections where explicit teaching about parables is given. They're in 10 to 17, and then in verses 34 and 35. And I think it's helpful to read those two sections together. So when you see those pairs of sections in this larger passage, it begins to become a bit simpler to deal with. So you have the one large parable to understand that Jesus explains, then the other large parable to understand that Jesus explains, then the two small parables, which reinforce the same meaning, and then the very interesting explicit teaching on parables and what they're about. Well, the basic message, I think, of these four parables for us can be boiled down to a simple statement, a simple statement. True Christians persevere in patience and obscurity in this age. True Christians persevere patience and obscurity in this age. I think that kind of walks right through the main street of what these parables are about. Each part of this statement is important. I don't know what part of the statement is particularly important for you today, but God does. As we work through this, I pray that this portion of His Word will encourage you to follow Him all the way home. My first point is simply that, number one, true Christians persevere. True Christians persevere. Today's disciples won't all last. You realize that, don't you? The people who appear to be disciples today won't all last. That's what the parable of the sower is about, isn't it? You'll notice 
in the first of the four examples in the parable of the sower, the seed falls by the path and immediately it's devoured by the birds. But the other three examples, they all hear the word. And they all respond to it. So you'll notice that in the way Jesus structures this parable, we understand that appearances can be deceiving. Jesus was instructing, he was warning his hearers, don't judge the Messiah or the Messiah's kingdom by immediate appearance. Very much like what Jesus had been telling John the Baptist when he sent his messengers from prison back in chapter 11. Maybe John was wondering it because he was still in prison. Thinking if Jesus was really the Messiah, wouldn't these injustices have been ended? So what am I doing in prison if he really is the Messiah? So you look back at Jesus' answer. Turn back to chapter 11. Look what Jesus said there in verses, chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Friends, this is the vibe of the early part of Jesus' ministry. In the first year or two years where we are, this is what's going on. Amazing things were happening, but not everything that they had expected was happening. So Jesus is a very interesting figure. He's an intriguing figure. Crowds were coming after him. Lots of people were apparently responding to him. Jesus told this parable to those who were truly his followers and would continue to be to prevent them from being wrongly discouraged by those who only seemed to be for a time his followers. But then the circumstances revealed them not to be. Big crowds listening, but not all in the crowds listening were following. Many who seemed to follow with enthusiasm at first didn't really last long. They were shallow, fair-weather disciples. And some of those who followed longer then found circumstances later that would show there were other matters that concerned them more deeply. How did Jesus put it in verse 22? The cares of this world. Riches. Because you know, when we're allowed to have Jesus and... A lot of us can look like followers of Jesus. But when circumstances change and it's a choice of Jesus or, well, then it starts to become really clear who is following Jesus. As a society, we may be going through a period of time where it's switching from Jesus and to Jesus or. Surely in individual lives, people face circumstances all the time that make us make such choices. I wonder if this parable makes sense of some of the things that you've been seeing recently. High-profile, self-professed Christians unprofessing. I want you to understand, according to this parable of Jesus, he is not telling us to understand that as good soil turning bad. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is specifically saying that there was always something different. They uh, appeared to be his followers. You think of our own church's statement of faith. 
How do we put it in our stately 19th century English? We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare. And they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Well, that truth is one truth that we see illustrated in this parable. Now, brothers and sisters, some of you may have been having a tough time this week at work. You may have been finding that as a Christian, you have been living in such a way that's provoking some opposition from some that you work with. Maybe even from those in authority above you. I pray that this will be a time when your faith will be proved genuine. That you will fear the Lord more than your boss. That you will love the Lord more than your job. That you will continue to follow the Lord, come what may. Trusting that through you, God will produce a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In places like America, especially in places like Washington, especially in places like Capitol Hill, Christians are drunk on the idea of doing something important for the Lord, you being strategic, making the best choices. Those are very often not good questions for limited beings like you and me to ask. We should ask what's good, what's true, and then do what we want in our Christian liberty. You know, get counsel from older, wiser people around us. Stop trying to strategize like you're God. You're not. You don't have all the variables. I've been very encouraged reading a book the last couple of weeks about Christians in China in the 20th century, where pastors again and again have been uh, arrested, taken out of their ministry for 10, 20, 30 years, imprisoned under terrible circumstances. And do you know how much that defeats God's work? Not one whit. God is sovereign. He knows exactly what he's allowing. These pastors are put alone by themselves in very unstrategic places. And yet God builds a platform for incredibly fruitful ministry in the future through their witness. Brothers and sisters, we, we are not the right beings to understand the end and everything about the end now. We can understand the things he tells us about the end, but the rest of it we just have to leave to him. Our part is to be faithful with what he gives us to witness. So what's to prevent us from falling into actionless words and wrong hearing? like these bad soils, the first three examples. Brother and sister, just look today. How are you responding to God's Word? Is there any evidence that you want to put into practice what you hear? That's what happens with the good soil. Jesus is giving this parable as a kind of hearing aid to help us hear better so that we'll put what we hear into practice. You, you shouldn't come here merely to be educated. Adam and Eve knew the will of God better than any of us will ever know it in this life. Yet look what they did. Mere knowledge of the Word of God is not good enough. We have to understand it with our heart and put it into practice. That's what you want to pray for, a heart that longs to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve Him with all you have. Jesus is telling us in this parable of the sower that true Christians persevere in learning and then in fruitfully doing what we learn. True Christians persevere. By God's grace, we keep on. So much more we could say from this wonderful parable, but we have to move on to this far less well-known parable that Jesus gives us here, the parable of the weeds. So number two, 
True Christians persevere in patience. In patience. This is our second part here. In patience. You see, the kingdom of heaven won't exactly appear as any institution in this age immediately. Not the state of Israel or any other nation. That's what they all expected when Jesus was there. Just like they expected when John the Baptist began to preach and crowds came out. Why did crowds come out? Because they were hoping it was Maccabees part two. The rebellion against another realm that could be in David's line of infinite political prosperity. That's why they rallied around John the Baptist. That's why they rallied around Jesus. You know, it's, it's interesting. Oh, let's take time. Go over to Acts chapter 1. I love this little thing. Acts chapter 1. Keep your finger in Matthew 13. We're going to be in Matthew 13. We're going to live there. We're just going to visit Acts chapter 1 very quickly. We're in the middle of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 13. But what's amazing to me is even after Jesus has his three or three and a half years of his earthly ministry teaching the disciples, even when they see him crucified, even when he is resurrected, and we have those Luke 24 seminars in biblical theology where he teaches them all about himself through the whole of Scripture, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was still on their minds after everything they had seen, after everything they had been taught, after they had a graduate degree from Jesus in biblical theology. They still wanted to know, okay, 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 now is this the time? That, that was front and center in the minds of everybody listening to Jesus. You say you're the Messiah, that means you're going to get Rome out and we're going to have everything as it should be now. But friends, Jesus taught so clearly throughout his ministry, that is not what he was doing then. That wasn't what he's doing with a nation. That wasn't what he's going to do with any ethnic people of Israel. You think of Paul's teaching in Romans 9, not all who are descended of Israel are Israel. The kingdom of heaven would not even be coextensive with what would become the visible church. It would be much more nearly coextensive with that. The kingdom of heaven will not be perfectly visible in this age and in this life. And that requires us to eschew utopianism and to be patient in our trust of God as we follow Jesus. That's why Jesus tells this parable of the weeds. Let's look at it again. We're not as familiar with it as we are with the parable of the sower. Uh, look at there in Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you want us to go gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if you look down at verse 36, he explains this parable. When he left the crowds and went into the house, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. 
The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now all the scholars who write on this parable explain that the farmers listening to Jesus who raised wheat would have also had darnel in their fields. A weed that would grow up and would look a lot like wheat. Until it got toward the end of the time where the heads of grain would be clear on the top of the wheat and it would look very different in this weed that was common. And so therefore they would need to wait till the end to distinguish them. Well, so Jesus used that common experience to say, look, things cannot be obvious for a while and still be true. You are looking for the coming of the kingdom, but you're having trouble telling what's real and what isn't. Well, just hold on. Keep watching this space. Time will tell. At last, God will make all things clear. And what that means to those who would follow Jesus is that you have to be patient now. And trust Jesus for the final word, that he will do what is just and right. That real distinctions, which are obscured now, will one day become clear for all of us to see. Condemnations will be clear and uncontested, and vindications will be sweet and right. Pardons will cause mercy's name to be adored, and Jesus' own ministry of substitutionary sin-bearing, to be praised for all the ages. Now, I know some here today, I'm sure, must be itching, feeling like they need justice now. We need a resolution now. Like you're itching for the end, or for false followers to be exposed, and wrongs to be answered. I can certainly sympathize with that. But I also remember what Peter wrote to the Christians who were feeling impatient for that day of final justice. 2 Peter 3.15 Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Or a few verses before that in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, according to the Bible, that's why there is a delay in the perfect justice of God. It's so sinners like you and me have time to repent. Now is not the time for us to be able to finally evaluate everything. Now is not the time of the final judgment. No, the final judgment will come later. Again, people at that time were teaching that the religion which was to be followed was the religion that was impressive now. Uh, and one way that a religion could be impressive now was to have to itself all the great institutions and traditions of the nation, like the temple priests and the laws and the sacrifices. But another way to be immediately impressive was to claim that the end of all struggles was now. Kind of like prosperity gospels preach in our day. Preachers who say, oh, if you'll just send me money, or believe this, or say this with your lips, then all these troubles will vanish. 
a lie from the pit of hell. Friends, again, that's a perennially popular way to distort the truth. Well, teachers were teaching at that time that the time had come now when all wrongs would be righted, including the end of Rome's occupation of Palestine. So the zealots and the revolutionaries were always promising that the Messiah was about to come and would bring an end to the rule of Rome now, and all the final alignments will come, and all the accompanying redistribution of power and prestige. But they didn't understand that it was so good for them that Jesus' second coming wasn't coming, because he had a first coming to get us ready for the second coming. Because if there's no first coming, that second coming gets really bad for all of us. So he had a first coming where he would save. He would give himself to save. And then, later, a second coming to judge. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven had come upon them, but that it wasn't yet fully grown. And that they must therefore be patient for justice for vindication, for God's complete victory. Jesus having a first coming would prepare us for his second. Friend, if you're here and you don't know what it means to be a Christian, it means to trust in God, to trust him for what he has done in Christ. Christ who lived a perfect life and then died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice that is in the place of all of us who have sinned. Him taking your place, paying for your sins, if you will trust Him with your life, if you will repent and believe. Friends, that's the good news that Jesus was creating even as He taught and lived depending on His heavenly Father and then died on the cross and was raised from the dead. That's the good news. That's the way we can know God personally in this life in a relationship that continues on throughout this life and into eternity. eternity. That is the good news. But everything associated with that is not immediately apparent. So Jesus was a teacher, and people were still dying, and Rome was still in power, and yet Jesus was teaching his message. Now look, when you and I look at it, we look at the tortoise and we look at the hare, we may be pretty sure the hare is going to win the race. But if you just keep watching... You might be surprised sometimes how it's that tortoise that goes across the line first. You never know until the end what's going to happen. Friends, now is the time for waiting and for changing. The time will come when no more change will be possible, and God will pronounce the final judgment. Friend, if you just want what is immediately visible, you will not like following Jesus. That there is just too much delayed. Everything is not right now. There is still death. There is still disappointment. There are still struggles to be had. That is part of what it means to follow Christ in a fallen world. It's a struggle that as long as we're honest, each of us can share with each other and pray about together. But we can know, as we were singing about and praying about early in the service, that there is a God who is sovereign over these struggles. And for all of His children, is using them for His good ends not to keep us from him, but to bring us to him, finally and forever. So friends, we should trust him. And what this parable is telling us is that we should be patient. We should have a lasting trust in him. Another part of this passage I want us to notice and appreciate and not overlook would be number three. True Christians persevere in patience and obscurity in this age. 
obscurity, that is, appearing small and insignificant. True Christians persevere in patience and obscurity in this age. Jesus was teaching here that the Messiah and his followers may seem insignificant now, but they won't always. And that's why he shared these two short parables about the mustard seed and of the leaven. Look there in chapter 13, verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So this mustard plant apparently got to be the size of a man on a horse, and these three measures of flour would have been about 50 pounds, making enough bread to feed about 200 people. But don't misunderstand, there had been no surprise to the people listening to Jesus that the kingdom of heaven would be large, uh, like the mustard plant in the garden becomes, or spreading through all three measures of flour, affecting all. There's, there's no surprise there. Everyone knew the kingdom of heaven would be large. That's not the point of these parables. Everyone knew and believed that the kingdom of God would be big. No, the point was that anything so large could ever appear small. Oh, that was the news. That was the, the point. That was the pop. That anything so large could ever appear small and even insignificant. A mustard seed. So you take a kind of dried out looking snow pea thing, you know, and then you got several peas inside it. You open it up. And instead of a pea that's that size, there are like 20 little mustard seeds could fit inside a pea. They're tiny little seeds. Tiny little seeds. You wouldn't notice if you lost one on your hand. It's so insignificant. And a tiny amount of leaven compared to all the flour. Friends, that the kingdom of God could ever appear like that, that was news. That was surprising, even shocking. And we can sympathize with that shock. We like the truth to be popular. We like godliness to be praised, even rewarded. It just does not come naturally to us to think that something can be both significant and apparently small. But that is absolutely essential for us to understand Jesus and his ministry and what he was and what he is doing, even in our midst. Everything in us wants to judge the importance of things by the present and material results. Things that we can see and touch and feel now. But friends, that's to have no faith at all. That's not Christian. That is pagan. That is the definition of worldliness. I don't call if they, I don't care rather if they call it various Christian names or religious names, the secret, you know, or church growth. Friends, it's all just paganism. No, Ian Murray defines worldliness this way. Worldliness is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. 
It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols and is at war with God. Friends, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus mentions here in verses 31 and 33, it's the rule and reign of God. And he is saying this is what the rule and reign of God is like. The coming of God's kingdom was at its heart the good news of Jesus that he was going around preaching. It was a kingdom that could be enjoyed and possessed without the blood of nobles or the wealth of the rich. It was a kingdom which was being founded on the reconciling ministry of Jesus. It was being taught especially to the disciples so that they too could go out and preach it. So where God's kingdom come, as we're seeing already in the ministry of Jesus, life and health and deliverance from sin and sickness would accompany it. And it had begun to break into this, fall, to break into this fallen world in the ministry of Jesus. And it will come fully when he returns. Its mere beginning in Jesus, though, is the most revolutionary news since the fall of Adam. Finally, the spiritual seasons are changing for the first time since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So while it wasn't all completed this day, Jesus stood there telling these parables, it was all certain, and he was announcing it. In the kingdom of God, we serve him faithfully, wholeheartedly, perseveringly. In that kingdom, God's promises are realized. So, so the point of these illustrations is simply to say that that which will be great, the kingdom, may currently appear insignificant in Jesus and his disciples. Does that make sense? Some, something which is apparently small, Jesus and his disciples, may have a great effect, the kingdom of God. Furthermore, even the expansion may be quiet and unnoticeable. These comparisons that Jesus gives here are sort of a verbal time-lapse photography. They give us a bird's eye view of what is certain. And what we find is that growth is certain. God's kingdom will achieve its goals. In both illustrations, growth happens to an almost supernatural extent. Friends, just take our meeting here. This meeting in this building. The building's a little over 100 years old. This meeting does not look very significant in some ways. Oh, and I know by some standards, our church may not seem very obscure. The building is large. We are on Capitol Hill. There are hundreds of folks gathered here. But, you know, compared to the United Nations, compared to Congress meeting down the street, you know, we look like a pretty insignificant group. And many churches around the world would, would have even fewer indicators of worldly significance than we have. So these Christian churches, how significant can they be? But friends, the answer doesn't come to being highly thought of in this world. There's a way, of course, in which Jesus' words here have proved true. By the growth that we've seen with our eyes, millions and millions have appeared to be converted. Christian churches meet in far-off China and South Africa and even here in North America, far, far from Israel. But still, the kingdom of heaven is obscure to those of this fallen world who see by the flesh and demand the resolution of all promises now. But that's because they don't believe the good news about Jesus. They don't understand who he is and what he's come to do. Friends, the kingdom is all about the gospel. Consider the greatness of these gospel promises that we're rejoicing in here today as we've been singing. 
the, the sins that hung over your head even as you woke up this morning. The sins that you were concerned about when you were even coming to church. The sins that even now would threaten you and accuse you have been dealt with once and forever. I mean, they are yesterday's news. It may not feel like that to you. But if you're a Christian trusting in Christ, they are yesterday's news. Luther used to tell something of his own struggles with the devil. Luther would realize his sin. He had a very active conscience. And when his sins came before him, then the, the devil would tell him, you are a great sinner. And the devil would tell him that to discourage him. But then the Holy Spirit helped Luther to remember 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Luther then could tell the devil, ah, that means then that if you tell me I'm a sinner, then I know that Christ came to save me. Amen. And friends, this is just the news and the beginning of our experience of it. We haven't even got to the best part yet. The best is what's still to come. We don't need to be discouraged that in this age all has not already happened and that God's kingdom seems obscure to many around us. We understand this from the very fact that we are following a rabbi that many people rejected and that the state even executed. We are believing that the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is obscure now to many, will one day be obvious to all. And so we persevere in patience and obscurity in this age. One last matter we should note in our passage this morning this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we read of Jesus teaching in parables. Now, parable is actually a fairly broad term, meaning basically an image or an illustration that stands for someone or something else, a kind of indirect teaching of, by symbol or analogy. It's not straightforward teaching. Look at what Jesus himself says about this kind of teaching. In chapter 13 here, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And skip down to verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Basically, if you want to understand how these parables are functioning at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's like a preview of the final judgment. The parables are like a preview of the final judgment. That is, God's word comes... It brings news of forgiveness and life. And to others, this same proclamation of the truth 
brings condemnation and final destruction. Revealing to some, to those who understood, and at the very same time concealing from others. This doesn't mean that God is unfair to anyone. God doesn't treat all people the same. But He is always fair, or better than fair, giving us what we deserve only through the mercy of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is happening even right now. Even as you're listening to these parables being read and taught one more time. I mentioned in the introduction that preachers get judged. I remember the very first sermon I preached here in this pulpit in July of 1993, over 26 years ago. And I preached on the parable of the sower. Now, why would I have preached on that passage? Well, because this congregation was looking for a new pastor. So they were wanting to hear people preach. So they were in danger of falling into the error of thinking that the main thing that was going on that Sunday morning was that they were sitting in judgment of me about my preaching. And while there was, of course, an element of that, that was as nothing compared to the great spiritual reality that was going on that Sunday. And every Sunday, we hear the Word of God preached. We are all being judged by the Word, by how we hear it, by how we respond to it, by whether we ignore it or whether we obey it, by whether we believe it or whether we forget it, by whether we're bored by it or drawn to love and fear the Lord more through it. You see, these sermons are not like some diving performance at the Olympics that you sit back coolly in your chairs and pews and decide, oh, that was an 8.5. No, I think that was a 9.5. No, friends, these are life-saving lessons in a world that is flooded with sin, where we are all in danger of death, and our only hope is what God has done in Christ. We are people who have a vital and an eternal interest in the truth of what is said from this place. Did you understand that when you came in today? Did, did you misunderstand what was going on here? You may in some secondary and passing sense be judging me for my preaching. But in a, a far more important and lasting sense, God is judging us all by His Word being preached and how we receive it. Do we demand what makes sense adds up now, immediate and impressive in this world? Well, if that's our religion, we're not going to like the Christianity you find in the Bible. Amen. Or do we show ourselves to be true Christians? Hearing and understanding. Truly turning and trusting. Persevering in patience and obscurity in this age. Trusting God for the provision of His grace as our only hope. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the good news that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Lord, in the promise of his coming again, in the provision of your Holy Spirit, of union with Christ through faith, 
of you adopting us as your children, of giving us the gift of your word so that we can be like these disciples here who, who hear the secrets explained. Lord, we give you praise for your love for us in giving out your word so broadly. We pray that you would sow it in our hearts, that our hearts would be good soil. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.